0: Also said to Saul that the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. In verse three, now go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would bless this time in the study of your word once again. And even though it can seem like a a difficult chapter to to look at, but Lord, we know that you desire to speak to us, that we would do well. And Lord, that we can learn and be blessed tonight. And that's what I pray takes place here. And so may our hearts right now be open to the things that you want to show us and teach us as we go through this very important chapter of 1 Samuel. And Lord, may we be just attentive to what you want to say because we can come in and be tired from the long day and the week. And and, um, Lord, we just want to right now um, just give our full attention with our spiritual ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I was listening to one of the kids uh, when I was... Um, coming in and getting ready to do the service, he was saying to one of his friends, come on, man, get real. And I was thinking that's really kind of what we're going to be looking at here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and then following because what we're going to see is Saul's heart is really going to be displayed for us. We're going to see the real Saul uh, that has taken place as he's been anointed the king of Israel. And we saw in chapter 13 that it was Samuel that would rebuke Saul because Saul was one that we saw in that chapter, took matters into his own hands when he would offer up those sacrifices before they went to war against the Philistines. And in that, Saul, we began to see, was beginning to become prideful. He was one that, uh, when he saw that his men were scattering because the Philistine garrisons were uh, being built up all around his troops and ready to attack, we know that uh, it was uh, Saul that was waiting for Samuel to come and to offer those sacrifices before they went to battle. But when Samuel didn't show up, when Saul expected him to, then we saw that Saul took matters into his own hands. And when Samuel came and rebuked Saul and said, Saul, what you have done is wrong. It is sin. Saul began to make excuses. He said, well, you know, you didn't come when you were supposed to, and the Philistines are building their armies against us, and the people are scattering, and I didn't want to do anything until I looked really spiritual before the people, so I went ahead and offer up sacrifices and, and those burnt offerings. And he should have known that it is only the priest that is allowed to do that. So you have sinned, Saul, and Saul began to make excuses. He was not repentive, And we have seen that Saul is one now that he wants to build a monument for himself. He is one that wants to look good before the men. He, he's being irrational. And so we're going to continue to see the real Saul come out here as we read our text as now Samuel, who has kind of withdrawn his ministry away from Saul at this point, He already told Saul that the kingdom is going to be divided and you're going to be replaced by another king who has a heart after God. And here, Samuel, as he's kind of been away from Saul and kind of withdrawn himself from ministering to him, he is told by the Lord, Samuel, you go and tell Saul that they are to go against the Amalekites. Now, it's interesting here that in the beginning of verse 1, that Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. And I got to thinking about that this afternoon as I was kind of pondering on this. And I thought, why does Samuel need to tell Saul that again? Is it that Saul has forgotten over these few short years that samuel anointed him as king over israel i don't think that's the point here i think that what samuel is saying here is don't you remember saul that the lord sent me to anoint you as the king over his people it is his people it is his nation you have a great responsibility and you recall that when saul was first uh told by samuel that he was going to take that position as in that office of king you're going to be ruling over the people at the end of chapter nine of first samuel it was samuel that took saul aside in that private conversation and began to speak to him we don't know what the prophet said to saul but i'm sure that samuel with his spiritual maturity and leadership and he's the one that's been leading the nation For years and decades now, the nation of Israel, he was the one that really helped lead the nation out of the days of the judges till now, to where they're going to have some good days when David comes along and he is anointed the king, which we're going to see in the next chapter. Their glorious days are coming up. But Samuel was really helpful and and beneficial to the nation because he went throughout the land, as we saw in this book in the previous chapters, speaking the word of the Lord. And I'm sure that as Samuel, this godly man, this er elderly man at this time, you know, when he is saying that, don't you remember that I anointed you as the king of Israel over his people? Oh, you've forgotten. Saul, what I spoke to you years before, when I took you aside, when I talked to you alone. Now, the text doesn't tell us there at the end of chapter 9 what it was that Samuel said to Saul, but you can just kind of imagine that Saul, you know what? You need to be humble. You need to be obedient to the Lord. This This is... you know, a a great opportunity, but also great responsibility as well. And you need to take it very serious. And I think that's why here that Samuel is saying this to Saul. Don't you remember? It wasn't that Saul had forgot, but don't you remember those things that I told you? He sent me to anoint you as the king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And he gives this very heavy command, I want you to destroy all of the Amalekites for what they did to God's people in the wilderness. And as we look at the Old Testament, we know that it was the Amalekites, what they did to God's people in the wilderness, as it was Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us, that Amalek, what they did is they attacked the rear ranks of the children of Israel. That is, those who were kind of the stragglers and tired and weary and and those who were lagging behind. That's who Amalek would do battle with. We know in that famous chapter of Exodus chapter 17, and it was in the wilderness that Amalek really was the one that would come against Israel and do battle with Israel. But in Exodus chapter 17, there is Moses up on that mountain, and Joshua's down below doing battle against the Amalekites. And you remember that as long as Moses had his hands up, that there was victory to the children of Israel, but when he got tired and those those arms began to come down, then And the Amalekites begin to win and, and win the battle. So it was her and Aaron that would come alongside of Aaron and hold his, or alongside of Moses and hold his arms up and they would have victory. But the Lord would say that it is the Amalekites that they're going to see my judgment and they're going to be blotted out. And the Lord said the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, one of the things that I want us to keep in mind is as I look at this, the Amalekites, to me, are a picture of the flesh. And here are the children of Israel that the Amalekites would sneak up and be very, very cruel to those who were kind of lagging behind, those who were tired, the Scripture says, those who were stragglers. And the flesh will really begin to rear up and attack you when you begin to become tired spiritually. Spiritually when you're kind of lagging behind, when you're kind of straggling behind, you know, and where the Lord wants you to be. And that's where we got to be careful because that's when the flesh will begin to really become against us. And that's when the enemy will attack us as well. So that's what was happening. And we can look at this and we can see and read how it is in verse 3 that you're to destroy all the Amalekites for what they have done done and and you're not to spare any of them, even get rid of all their sheep and oxen and camels and donkeys. And this can be difficult for us to read. And sometimes people they look at this and and they read it and they think, why? Why would God do that? Well the Amalekites were ones that again, for over four hundred years they've been so cruel to God's people. They are ones that been not fearing God. They've been involved in great wickedness and great depravity. So God's going to bring judgment to them. It's kind of like in the book of Genesis, where we see in Genesis chapter 15, that the Lord told Abraham that Abraham, that your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years, for four generations. And after those four generations, I'm going to be dealing with the iniquity of the Ammonites. In other words, it was those Canaanites, Ammonites, that the children of Israel, as we discussed, when they came across the Jordan River and began to drive out those Canaanite tribes, that God said that you're to utterly destroy them. They were full of wickedness and sin, and it was going to be a problem to the children of Israel. if If they were in the land, he said that they're going to be a thorn to your side. They're going to be a problem to you, and they're going to bring sin, and they're going to be a threat to you so god is judging sin and for 400 years the canaanites had refused to repent as he was dealing with the iniquity of the ammonites as he told their abraham in the book of genesis but also for 400 years the amalekites have had a chance to repent And so the lord said because of the cruelty that they showed to my people the judgment is going to come there's an important lesson god is a god of love He's a God of mercy and long-suffering. But He's also a God that's going to judge sin. And we know that the day is going to come when those final years are going to be right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that He's going to be pouring out His judgment on Christ rejected world. And you can read the book of Revelation, the details that are given in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. And when God does judge a Christ-rejected world, It's not easy, it's not always pleasant to read it, but, you know, God's judgment is thorough, and it is complete. And that's why it's important for us to really be praying for those who don't know the Lord, and to be sharing the gospel with them, and the truth, and and to have a heart for the lost, because God is going to judge sin. And Jesus Christ, the good news for you and for me who are Christians here tonight, as we come to the communion table, we remember that Jesus took the judgment of sin for you and I. And as we have come in faith, believing in who he is and what he has done for us, oh, thank you, Jesus, you died for me. You died in place of me. You died for all of my sins. And he took the judgment for me. And that's why we really are so blessed to be here tonight to celebrate our salvation, to come to the communion table. It should be a real time of reflecting and reverence of the Lord and just being at awe and amazed at his incredible grace and what he has done for us in dying on Calvary's cross and taking the judgment that you and I deserved. But it is going to be the Lord that's going to judge sin. He's going to judge a Christ-rejected world, and it would be thorough. So here, listen, Saul, take heed. Take heed to the voice of the words of the Lord. And whenever you hear that word, uh, those words, take heed, it's very important exhortation that is given. Because God is saying, take this seriously. He's not mixing any words. He says, take heed. Take this seriously. Understand it carefully. Know what it is that I'm saying and what you are to do Is that you are to destroy all of the Amalekites, not most of them, but all of them, and other sheep, oxen, donkeys, and camels, everything, because of what they have done to my people. And so that is given to Saul, that command given to him. You are the king. Don't you remember that I came in and I anointed you king? You have a responsibility here. You're supposed to be shepherding God's people. And you're supposed to take heed to the words of the Lord. As you go to the New Testament, you see that oftentimes, take heed is what we are told in the New Testament. So whenever you're doing your devotions or your Bible studies, whenever you see that that phrase, take heed, underline it. And and know what it is that the Lord is saying. We saw that in Mark chapter 4, not long ago, a few Sundays ago, when the Lord said, take heed to what it is that you are hearing. Take heed to what you're taking in. Take heed to to the scriptures as you're reading the scriptures. Have the scriptures be worked in your heart. And as Jesus was given the parable of the soils and talking about, you don't hide a a lamp under a basket, but you let your light to shine forth. And and the parable of the farmer that went out and he knew that as he planted the seed, a crop would come out. Take heed to what it is that you're hearing. Because as you are taking heed, as you're hearing the word of God, you're going to grow in faith as the Word of God is planted in your heart. And you're going to be able to have understanding and walk in godly wisdom and know His ways. So take heed to what He says. You know, what the Lord says and what it is that you hear is what we've already seen just recently in our studies. But also the Lord, He, he said in Luke chapter 12, take heed, beware of covetousness. You know, beware of those things. Wanting more what your neighbor has or what your friend has. And we live in a society where we don't talk a whole lot about coveting and, and it's just kind of emphasized and it's something of, of you know, the philosophy of the world that, hey, get more. Have what your neighbor has. Keep up with the Jones and all of this. And we can so easily fall into covetousness and, and the Lord specifically said, beware of that. But we also know that the Lord would say, take heed to yourself. Take heed to yourself. He would tell, Paul would tell Timothy there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He's not telling Timothy in that that you are to be focused on yourself, that you are to be one that, you know, everything is, you know, your decisions on selfishness, or so self, self-centeredness. No, take heed to yourself. In other words, make sure that you're cultivating a mature, special, very in-depth relationship with the Lord. Take heed to yourself. That you're moving forward in the Lord, that you're growing in the Lord, that you're loving the Lord. Take heed to yourself, Timothy, and then the ministry that God has given to you. And you see, that ties in so much that I think what really is being told to Saul. It also reminds me of what Paul would tell the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter twenty. As Paul would tell them, as he's meeting with those Ephesian elders for the last time, and he would say to them, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word, but he would say, therefore, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves, just as Paul would tell Timothy. Make sure that you are cultivating that deep Personal relationship with Jesus Christ, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. And when I read that, that's very sobering for me to look at and to understand. You know what? I am to make sure that I'm taking heed to myself, that is, staying close to the Lord and then shepherd the flock of God which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, which He purchased with His own blood. It's His church. He loves the church. So it reminds me of the awesome responsibility that I have in overseeing the church and shepherding the church because this is his church that he purchased with his own blood. Saul, so take very seriously the responsibility of shepherding the children of Israel. Take heed, this is what you are to do. Destroy all the Amalekites for what they did. I've waited over 400 years to do this, and now's the time to do this. Verse 4, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out Of Egypt, so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. so Saul is preparing to attack the Amalekites. He has two hundred and ten thousand soldiers that are going to get, go against the amalekites and Saul warns the Kenites they 're a nomadic tribe that was down in that area of the desert uh, to the south where the Amalekites are, and even down towards Egypt and over into Arabia. And the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And they were kind to Israel. They were kind to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness area. So Saul goes to them and says, Listen, you need to get out before judgment is going to come. You've shown kindness to the children of Israel, so we're going to have this massive invasion. So the Amalekites are going to be wiped out. You don't want to be caught up in it, so you need to be taken out of the way. Now, it does remind me, and and I see these different pictures of God taking those out of the way before judgment would come on. Isn't it interesting that Noah was put into the boat, him and his family, and they were sealed in the ark before judgment would come down, the 40 days of rain, and would flood the world. We know that it would be Lot as he was in Sodom and Gomorrah. The New Testament calls Lot righteous Lot. When we look at his life, I think Lot made some very foolish decisions spiritually for his family. That he didn't seem very righteous in the Old Testament book of Genesis, but he had faith in the Lord. And it's the New Testament that comes along in Hebrews chapter 11 calls him righteous Lot. And here is Lot. He is in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels come and they took him out of his family, Sodom and Gomorrah, before judgment would come. I think about Rahab. Now she wasn't taken out of, Jericho, her house was on the wall, but she put the scarlet thread out. She had faith. Oh, I know that God has given you the land because I have heard what he did to the Egyptians and drowned the Egyptian army. She had faith. She's also recorded in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But she was spared from the judgment that would come upon Jericho. It was Jeremiah. I think one of the saddest verses that we have in the Old Testament When the judgment would come down upon Jerusalem and Jerusalem would be destroyed, that Jeremiah, as he's overlooking and has this vision of of Jerusalem being destroyed, he would say that summer's over, the harvest is in, and we're not saved. The reason I'm bringing all of this up because it reminds me how the Lord's going to take us out of that hour of tribulation when judgment does come upon the whole earth. And the promise given to you and to me in the Church of Philadelphia is that I will take you out of the hour of tribulation. Not that I'm going to preserve you through or keep you through, but I'm going to take you out of the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And that brings comfort to me, as Paul would say, comfort one another with these words. And we can know that before the hour of judgment is going to come upon a Christ-rejected world, that he's going to take us out so the Kenites, you guys need to go and, and, and you need to get out and, because the attack is going to come, verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. So this is a huge area, really, that they are attacking the Amalekites. And he also took Agai, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agai and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So when you read this, here's the interesting thing. It says that he took Agai, king of the Amalekites, utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we think, Saul, you did a pretty good job in that. I mean, he destroyed the Amalekites. He got Agai, the king of the Amalekites. But also they would bring back the best of the sheep and oxen, fatlings and lambs, and that was good. They destroyed everything else. So Saul did pretty good here. But I want you to underline something in verse 9 there. I want you to take note, and just keep this in the back of your mind as we continue on. It says Saul and the people spared Agai. It is Saul and the people that spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Now when we look at this, do we say, okay, Saul, good job, because that's what he's going to say. I performed the commandments of the Lord. But did he really? Did he really? What did the Lord say? Take heed, Saul. Pay attention. This is important. I want you to wipe out all of the Amalekites, all of their sheep and oxen. Utterly blot them out, destroy them. Is that what Saul did? He didn't. I mean, he did 90% of what he was supposed to do. But he didn't perform the commandments of the Lord. Partial obedience is equal to disobedience. And sometimes we can think, well, Lord, I'm doing mostly what you want me to do, but I got this little agai here that I have in my life. You know, Lord, I, I've done real good in all these different areas, but uh, I'm going to kind of keep this ag guy with me. When the Lord is saying, get rid of him and to do away with it. You see, you can't have any area of the flesh that is alive in your life or in my life. I can't have that. Because when we get to the end of the chapter, I'm going to tell you what happens to Saul. And there's a very important lesson in this, not just of disobedience. But what happens if we keep the ag eyes in our own lives? So he thinks he's done pretty good here, but let's continue on. Verse 10, now the word of the Lord came up to Samuel, saying, I have greatly regret that I set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So God's word comes to Samuel, and he says to the Lord that I was greatly regret, I set up Saul as king. Now why does, does God say that? What does he mean by that? Didn't he know that Saul would do this? Didn't he know that Saul would become prideful and Saul would become disobedient and Saul, we're going to see, is going to continue on a spiral, you know, downward trend spiritually and fast here in the next few chapters. Didn't God know all of that? So why did God say here, I I regret that I set up Saul as king? God knew this was going to happen So it wasn't like God is caught off guard, but why would he set Saul up as king in the first place? I don't have all the answers. I don't know. But I do know some things that as we continue in 1 Samuel, that we will see that God will use Saul to strengthen David, to strengthen his faith, and and to have david go through those trials because as most of you know what we're going to see is saul's is going to begin to persecute david in chapter 16 david is going to be anointed as the new king now david doesn't walk up to saul you know and say saul get lost i'm the new king i just got anointed the new king he doesn't take the throne it's going to be years and years as a matter of fact it's going to be about 20 years before david unites the kingdom together and he's sitting as king on the throne you know they're um as the king of Israel. So a lot of years are going to pass. And a lot of those years, about 12, 13 years, for our best account, is that Saul's going to be pursuing David, trying to kill him. And David, as we know, as you go through the Psalms, he's crying out to the Lord, isn't he? So one of the things that God is using this is to teach David and to grow David, for David to trust in the Lord, we have these beautiful psalms that are recorded by David as he would go through the, those times of difficulties and trials and and hard times. I mean, we all go through hard times. How many of us have had somebody pursue us for 12, 13 years wanting to lop our heads off? And maybe you've been through something like that where you've just had friction with with those that are close to you in your life or difficulties or maybe a boss come against you or whatever it might be, but you can go to the Psalms when you're going through whatever pain and difficulty that you're experiencing in your life and you can read David's Psalms and it begins to comfort you, doesn't it? Because he was so articulate. He's the most articulate man in all of Scripture. And David, that worshiper, and David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, these words are preserved for us to bring comfort to us, so it benefits us. I don't know all the reasons why the Lord left Saul as king at this time, didn't just wipe him out, why he even put Saul up as king, but God used it for good. He used it for good for David eventually, and he uses it good for us because now we can be comforted by those words in the worship of David that he wrote, that are preserved in the canon of Scripture for all eternity. But there's also some very important lessons that I think that we want to learn here. And that is, number one, it grieves God very much when we don't walk in obedience. It grieves his heart, and that's the way we need to look at it. Sometimes Christians kind of get a picture of, of, you know, when he sees us, when we commit sin or in disobedience or living in a way that is contrary to the Lord, that he's up in heaven, you know, and he's, you know, so angry and he's going to blast us and hates us. We need to understand that it grieves his heart when we do that. When he sees his children, it's like any of us that are parents, when we see our children that, you know, aren't doing well or they do something wrong or they sin, it grieves us, doesn't it? And sure, there are other emotions that come with it at times, but most of all, it grieves us. We want our children to do well. We want them to do what we've told them to do and and walk in a way that we've raised them in that way. And whenever they begin to, to go in a direction which is not good, or they end up doing what is wrong, it breaks our hearts as parents, doesn't it? And that's the way it is with the Heavenly Father. And here is Samuel. He's grieving as well, and that's the second lesson. That he is grieving. He's not there going, I knew Saul. I knew he was going to do that. I knew he was going to pull this. I can't wait till I go and talk to him. I'm really going to just let him have it. And he deserves it. And just, he's grieved right now. He's grieving. And he's going to continue to grieve. As we're going to see in the next chapter, the Lord's going to say, Okay, Samuel, it's time to stop grieving. And you need to move forward and anoint the new king of Israel. But when we see a brother or sister that is, you know, in disobedience or hardness of heart or involved in sin, we should be grieving. It should grieve our hearts because they're not doing well in the things of God. And here is Samuel showing a true shepherd's heart. It grieves. One of the things for me as as a pastor that, you know, getting older and, and been in ministry for almost 20 years That that's more that the Lord has really just shown me to grieve when people are saying, I don't want to do what the Lord has told me to do or they're being in disobedience or in sin because I know that they're going to get hurt. And I know it's not going to go well. And I know that they're sowing seeds of corruption, that there's going to be a horrible crop of the flesh that's going to come up. And there's going to be consequences and repercussions that will take place in their lives that is not going to be good. They're going to find themselves in bondage. All kinds of things that, that I know that the Scripture says. And we see it in people's lives. And it grieves me. And I know sometimes we get upset and we can you know, get our blood pressure up. But more than anything, do we grieve for those who are not doing well in the things of God and in the ways of God? And that's the way Samuel, would I, or Samuel, as I learned from him here. So verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and he was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul, here, he goes all the way from the southern part of the nation, goes up Along the western coast, he goes clear up to the northern part of the nation where Mount Carmel is. It's a very beautiful spot. Mount Carmel is the place where Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and the wood of the sacrifice. So he goes up there, and what does he do? He builds a monument for himself. So this is one of the things that we see in the heart of Saul. He's become prideful. I'm going to set up a monument for me. Look what I have done. And he's bringing back the best of the sheep and the oxen and all of this. And he's got this parade. He's got Agai, king of the Amalekites. He's bringing back as a trophy. Hey, let's stop here on Mount Carmel on our way to Gilgal. And we'll set up this monument for me so the people know that I let this great victory. How much different it is than it was from chapter 11 when he gave glory to the Lord. He said, the Lord has brought us this salvation this day. But now it's all about him and looking good before the people and that's going to continue on here one of the things that that we need to and i know for me i don't want to build monuments i've said this before when the lord comes back i don't want my fingerprints all over this place i just simply want to be in a place where god has me but all of the glory goes to him he will not share his glory with any man or any woman And ministry isn't about building monuments so we can be seen and be noticed. And that's a real temptation that can come to any of us, that minister, in any capacity. We want to glorify the Lord and give Him the glory and the honor that is due His name. Because He's the one that's doing the work through us and in us. He's the one that has saved us. He's the one that has forgiven us. It's the Holy Spirit that is working through us and ministering through us. So we have no reason to boast in ourselves. Verse 14 we read, But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You, you perform the commandments of the Lord? Really? Have you done that, Saul? Then what's this this noise? I was doing a hospital visit today and um, of a man who... Uh, their family have just come to Calvary in the last couple of weeks, and I've known him ever since, um, you know, since we've come to Greeley. And he's in the hospital, and his daughter was um, 12 years old when we came to Greeley. Now she has two young boys and is expecting her third, but she had her boys there. I never met him before, and it was really neat. The two-year-old, he was, you know, doing animal noises, you know, sheep and bah, and, you know, and, and cattle and all that we just had a great time anyway it just reminded me of that this afternoon when i was up visiting him you know what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears so you'd say you know what is the sheep bah, he'd say so here's samuel he's hearing this you know this of the sheep and move the cow and all of this what's what's up with this you've performed the commandments of the lord really really And Saul said they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. Sacrifice the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he's coming up with more excuses here. I told you in verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agai. And Saul and the people brought the best of the sheep. What's Saul saying now in verse 15? Oh, they brought from the Amalekites the best of the sheep. It's the people that did it. And they're doing it for a good reason, to sacrifice to the Lord. He sounds so spiritually. The rest we utterly destroyed. Sometimes people will look at this and they think, you know, David, he kind of got off easy, didn't he? Because David, he really committed sin. He committed adultery and he committed murder. And God didn't. Reject him as the king of Israel. Oh, he paid heavy consequences and repercussions because of it. Certainly he did because of his sin. But God kept him as king. The difference between David was that David repented and Saul didn't. And we see that as we continue, verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Didn't I just tell you you have an important responsibility? And you were humble at that time. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I've obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agai, king of the Amalekites. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. The sacrifice of the Lord your God in Gilgal. It's the people. They did it. They brought it back. Still blaming the people. Still blaming the people. He just doesn't get it. I performed the commandments of the Lord. I brought back Agai, but the rest of them I utterly destroyed. I got this little Agai here. And it's the people, they brought it back. He's making excuses and he's lying because verse 9 said it was Saul and the people that brought it back. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, a good verse for us to know. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There is real repentance. That's godly sorrow, leads to repentance, leading to salvation. You will never regret repenting when it's true godly sorrow. But then there's worldly sorrow that produces death. There are those who you know, are sorry for the consequences that they're experiencing because of what they did. And there's a difference between true repentance, godly repentance, and worldly sorrow. That is not true repentance. And over the years of ministry, I've talked to those who are in my office, and they're weeping, they're crying, and I did this, and I know I did wrong, and oh. But really, there wasn't true repentance because they went right back to doing what they were doing. They're just sorry for the consequences that they went through. So true repentance is not to be regretted. It's going to be one that you're going to turn directions and turn to the Lord and trust in him. And we see that he continues to blame the people here as he says, you know what? They're the ones that brought it back. They're doing it for a spiritual leader. I did perform the, the mission that God sent me. Oh, I brought back a guy, but everybody else I destroyed as he continues making excuses. Verse 22, so Samuel said, has the Lord... As great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. He's saying, listen, you don't get it, Saul. And I pray that we would understand that this is a verse, verse 22, where it's underlined. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. The Lord's not interested in your burnt offerings and sacrifices. What He is interested in, Saul, what He is interested for us here tonight, is that we obey. That we obey. And you see, that was the difference between Saul and David. Because David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he would repent. And he was forgiven of the Lord. And he would write that psalm in Psalm 51. For you do not desire sacrifice, Lord. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You are pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. David understood what true repentance was all about. God wants us to obey. I am so thankful that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Of course, that we have that wonderful promise and provision given to us, but the Lord desires for us to walk in obedience, doesn't he? Not to just have this sloppy agape, while well, I'll just do whatever I want and 1 John 1.9 it. The Lord is desiring for us to walk in His ways. To walk in obedience for Him. The sacrifices of righteousness. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, he says. Stubbornness, iniquity is idolatry. And now you've been rejected as king. And then Saul said to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Here he, he seems like he's repenting, but he really hasn't. I, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I personally don't think he feared the people. He could have made the people, destroyed all the sheep and oxen. I mean, here Saul just a few chapters ago makes a real irrational rash oath and he was willing to kill his own son because he didn't keep it. And now he's saying, oh, I feared the people. No, you didn't. You wanted to look good before the people. So verse 25, Therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent." In verse 30, and he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul just wanted to look good before the people. He wanted to look at, Listen, don't ruin this day, Samuel. Come with me, because if you don't come with me, it's going to look awkward. And the people know you're the spiritual leader. I want you to come. Come with me is what I want you to do. But I want to know something. And I noticed this actually just... When I was reading through the text right before I came down and just praying about it, but I'd never noticed this before, but notice in verse 30, he says, I have sinned, but, but honor me before the elders. I want to look good before the people. I just set up a monument. I brought these sheep back. For, it was supposed to be a great celebration and ruining, but he says, return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He didn't say my God. He didn't say or our God. You may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agai, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agai came to him cautiously, and Agai said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, that's how cruel Amalek was. Agai was. So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agai in pieces before the Lord in Gilgad. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house of Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So now Samuel has really withdrawn his ministry away from Saul, and we're going to see that Saul is going to get worse. He's going to get more bitter. He's going to get more hard towards the Lord we're going to see that he really, as I mentioned to you, is going to begin that spiral crash spiritually. But I I want you to know this, as I mentioned to you, that the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. To me, as I look at it, as he brings back a guy, and sometimes in our own lives, that we can have these little a guys. Oh, it's no big deal. I've utterly kind of I'm not doing this thing anymore, Lord. I'm not doing that. I don't have that attitude anymore. But I do have this little agai, whatever it might mean for any of us. You know what the interesting thing here is? Who ended up killing Saul? When we get to Second Samuel chapter one, the one who would take his sword and thrust it into Saul on that last battle that he would be involved in, him and his son Jonathan, when David asked, who are you, the one who brought the, the the word? He said, I'm an Amalekite. It was an Amalekite that did Saul in. It was the Amalekites that actually, at the end of 1 Samuel, as we're going to see that would come and attack David and his mighty men and their families and burnt their homes down and took their families away captive. Here's the thing that we need to remember. If you got a little egg in your life, it's going to come back and it's going to do you in. It's going to multiply because here somehow there were some Amalekites that were left. I don't know exactly. This is one of the questions that I have with the Lord because it says here that we utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. That's what the text said, but apparently there was some left or somehow egg eye seared some, and fathered some you know, babies before he got hacked up, I think that Saul didn't kill all the Amalekites because it's going to be in about 12, 13 years that the Amalekites are going to be populated enough that they're going to come against David. But my point tonight is this, that if you have the mindset of, I got this little agai in my life, this little fleshly tendency, nobody knows, I take a look once in a while on the computer or I watch that DVD or whatever it might mean that it's going to do you in. It's going to come back and bite you. And it's just a matter of time and that's why the Lord says that we are to utterly get rid of all those fleshly desires and tendencies and the walk in the Spirit. So tonight as we go to the Lord here, as we come to the communion table. Jesus Christ died for our sins and took the judgment for you and for me. But he also, as we have been forgiven of sin, he's given us of his Holy Spirit that we don't have to be empowered by sin anymore. We don't have to be in bondage to sin. So if there's a little agai in your life, let's go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? This is something that maybe is not a big deal to me but it is to you. It grieves your heart. And Lord, that I know that I am to give this thing up. You've been convicting me of it. You've been speaking to me about it. Your word is clear about it. So Lord, help me to to take this agai and to crucify it, to crucify the flesh in a walking away that is pleasing to you. Father, that's what our prayer is tonight. And Lord, I do pray if there's any tendencies in our hearts, it may be an attitude of the heart. It may be lust, it may be pride, it might be selfishness, it might be whatever it is. Lord, we know that we're not perfect on this side of eternity, but we also know that you desire for us to walk in your ways, to do away with the guys of our lives, not to just have it And thinking it's no big deal. Because we know that it will grow and it will multiply and it will do us in. And Father, as we come to the communion table tonight, Lord, we come in reverence, we come in awe just of what you have done for us in our lives. As Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins as he has provided forgiveness of sin. But Lord, also, as we have come in faith and as we hold these elements in our hands, we come as believers just remembering, Jesus said, do this. This is my body which was broken for you and and my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take and eat, take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. We do that tonight. But Lord, also, we come tonight. And if there are things in our hearts, or attitudes that aren't right, we confess it right now. And your word says that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, also free us from the power of sin, the bondage of sin that it can have in our lives. And you desire for us, Lord, we know, because you want what's best for us. To really live out that it's better to obey than the sacrifice. And Lord, that you would free us from perhaps that agai, that really rears up its ugly head when we're feeling weak and tired. We're kind of straggling behind. We're not in a place where we should be. Lord, make us strong. And we know that that is done as we walk in the Spirit. So Lord, tonight we come and just give that to the Lord right now. Just confess it. Let's take a few minutes before we come to the communion table.